Well, good morning. If we haven't met, I'll continue the string of introductions. <laughs> My name is John Sherrill. I too am one of the pastors here, and it's great to be worshiping with you uh, this day. We're, we're in the midst of a series taking us through some highlights of the book of Acts. It's called The Gospel in Motion, the name of the series. It was written by Luke as a kind of companion volume to the gospel that he wrote, where the gospel of Luke tells us of everything Jesus did while he was in person uh, here on earth. In, in, in a way, Acts tells us of the work that Jesus continued after he had ascended to heaven, uh, but continued to move the gospel forward in the world by the power of his Holy Spirit. So we've been looking at stories through the book of Acts. Uh, last week, Pastor Brian preached a great message on the conversion of Saul, who became the Apostle Paul. And today we look at the vision God gave to Peter to help him grasp that the good news about Jesus was really a message for the world, not just the, the Jewish believers of that day. Scripture tells us to attend to the public reading of Scripture. Uh, often for a sermon, we look at a little snippet, not today. So buckle your seatbelt, engage your mind, engage your imagination, and listen to the story of Cornelius and Peter and the vision that God gave to Peter. Our scripture this morning comes from Acts chapter 10, verses 1 through 33. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day, at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? he asked. The angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened, and he sent them to Joppa. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat, and while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out, asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. 
While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I am the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, We have come from Cornelius the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. The next day, Peter started out with them, and some of the believers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I am only a man myself. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius answered, Three days ago, I was in my house praying at this hour at three in the afternoon. Suddenly, a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He is a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thank you. And uh, Peter went on to share the gospel and Cornelius and the whole household there came to faith in, in Jesus. Interesting fact, back in Jesus' day, it was illegal, meaning against Jewish law, to assist a Gentile woman in giving birth. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? Why would something like that be illegal? You want to know? Because assisting a Gentile woman to give birth would bring another heathen into the world. Wow. Uh, you know, right now in our country, we all know that we're living through a pretty strange time, the culture wars and crazy division. I, I don't know how you have experienced this personally. Um, I know for me, I don't like it. <laughs> Just a, it, it, it. For me personally, it feels harder to do life in our country these days. That might just be, be me. I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, there, there seems to be division at every turn. And when, when there's so much division, I don't know about you, I always start wondering, what is really going on here? What, what is really going on here? John Stott put it well. Divisiveness is a constant characteristic of every community without Christ. Well, the divisiveness we're experiencing in our culture in our day is 
nothing compared to, to the division in ancient times between Jewish folks and Gentile folks. It pales in comparison. Look at this quote. A study of the history of the ancient world tells us that none of today's social distinctions, none of our racial barriers, our narrow nationalism, our iron curtains are more exclusive and unrelenting than the separation between Jews and Gentiles in biblical times. Orthodox Jewish men would, would pray regularly, thank you God that I was not born a Gentile. Gentiles were referred to as dogs, literally, and, and the value of their life was right in that same kind of category. Now to be clear, there is nothing in the Old Testament to substantiate such a view of fellow human beings. In fact, the basic calling of the people of Israel was both simple and very clear. We, we get a good chunk of it in the uh, covenant God made with Abram. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Very clear. God wants to use his people to bless everybody everywhere. Blessed to be a blessing. But somewhere along the line, the train went off the rails, right? And just so we don't get a cramp in our finger pointing at everybody else, <laughs> hey, we all know them as us in this situation, right? If we're honest with ourselves, we know that in our hearts we have the capacity to do this exact same thing. The tragedy was that Israel twisted the doctrine of election into one of favoritism, became filled with racial pride and hatred, despised Gentiles as dogs, and developed traditions which kept them apart. I mean, the whole Jewish-Gentile division was memorialized in the temple in Jerusalem. If you, if you look in your Bible, if you have a study Bible, there's a little map of the temple or what the temple looked like. There was a physical wall between the court of the Gentiles and the rest of the temple. And on that wall were hung signs in both Latin and Greek forbidding Gentiles to go beyond that wall into the uh, closer parts of the temple. Now, I remember when Jesus overturned the the tables of the money changers. Remember that story if you're more familiar with the Bible? He was mad because they were all set up in the court of the Gentiles and the, the court of the Gentiles was supposed to be that place where people who didn't yet know God could come and kind of check out what faith might look like for them. But people were making that a, a, a bazaar, kind of a place of profiteering and Jesus was mad. So he went around flipping up tables. That's the why behind that whole story. The sign on the wall between the court of the Gentiles and the rest of the temple said this, no foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. Well, that's a nice sign to have up at church, isn't it? <laughs> Very inviting. <laughs> uh, through archaeological digs, we've actually found these plaques that were on. You can go see them in... Um, museums in Istanbul and Jerusalem. They're called the Thanatos inscriptions. Thanatos is the Greek word for death. They're the death inscriptions. They were hanging on the wall at church. Houston, we have a problem. <laughs> Completely off the rails, right? Because of those inscriptions, that wall between the court of the Gentiles and the rest of the temple was referred to as, quote, the dividing wall of hostility. 
Now, if you're more familiar with the Bible, you might be hearing an echo here because that same phrase is used by the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Ephesians. Look at this. He's talking about the division between Jew and Gentile here. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ for he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one. Now you know the background, so you're getting just a little taste of how utterly revolutionary that claim was, right? He made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility that everyone's picturing that wall in the temple with the death inscriptions on it, right? That's what's in their head when they read that. By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Right? And all the Jewish people read that and go, what? Amazing. The point of all this is it would be difficult for us to overestimate the animosity between Jews and Gentiles in Jesus' day. And our story is about a Gentile and a Jew and how God began working out in his people what he was up to. The Gentile, of course, was Cornelius, a Roman centurion, a military equivalent of a captain in our armed forces, respected, well-trained, accomplished. Peter, of course, was the Jewish person in the story. This is the apostle Peter. He had already experienced the surprising repentance of a Samaritan village. If you turn back two chapters in your Bible to chapter eight, you see the, the story of Philip the evangelist. And after the great persecution broke out in Jerusalem, after uh, Stephen, one of the first deacons, was martyred, all of the Christians except the apostles left Jerusalem and kind of scattered. And Philip went to Samaria and he preached in a village there. And the whole village came to Christ. And he sent word back to Jerusalem and said, hey, I went to this Samaritan village and the whole village came to Jesus. And the leader said, no way, we got to verify this. So they sent the big dogs, the apostle Peter and the apostle John. Two of the primary leaders of the church went to that village in Samaria to check it out. And when they got there, you can read about it in chapter eight. When they got there, they kind of looked at each other and said, well, the whole village has come to Christ. And then they laid hands on and God poured out the Holy Spirit on believers and so, so Peter had had this experience. So in his, in his mind, he's, he's starting to wonder. Like, I know God loves Jewish people, but what's going on in Samaria? Like, what was that about? So his previous cultural guidelines as to who was in and who was out were already being challenged, right? And then God gave Peter this vision. You heard it, so I won't repeat the whole thing. But, but it's clear that the vision was tailor-made to offend an Orthodox Jewish person. The sheet being lowered from heaven with a bunch of animals mixed in there. From the list, we know that some were clean and some were unclean, not to be eaten or touched by a, a Jewish person. And then a voice saying, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Peter had never, probably never, ever eaten an unclean animal. That would have been a direct offense to God. So predictably, he responded, surely not, Lord. Peter replied, I have never eaten 
anything impure or unclean. It's a great phrase. Surely not. That it would be, if we were to translate it into modern day, you know, kind of lingo, it would be, no way. No way I'm doing that. And the Bible records Peter using that exact same phrase three different times. So obviously here's one of them. Uh, The first came when Jesus began to predict and teach his disciples that he would have to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things and, and be killed and then be raised on the third day. When Jesus started saying that, Peter said, no way. We would never let that happen to you. No way. To which Jesus responded, get behind me, Satan. Right? Then uh, when Jesus went to wash Peter's feet, Peter said, Lord, are you going to wash my feet as well? Jesus You do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand, Peter. No way. No way you're washing my feet. I'm supposed to wash your feet. You're not supposed to wash mine. No way. It's that emotional force. Sheets lowered down, clean, unclean animals, and everything in Peter says, no way. I'm not doing that. And the Lord's response echoes through the ages and should penetrate the deepest parts of every follower of Jesus. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Don't call impure what God has made clean. Made clean. The Greek word there is katharizo, to make clean, cleanse, or purify. It carries a connotation of being declared clean, being made clean by declaration, rather than like scrubbing hard. It's the same kind of... um, category of, of verb that Paul uses to describe righteousness in Romans. It, it, there's a, a legal declaration that God makes when we come to, by God's grace, to faith in Jesus, and we're declared not guilty. It's not like we didn't do all the stuff. It's just that we're declared by God to be unguilty. Now, that's not exactly what it means here. It seems that here the Lord was trying to undo in Peter the idea that there are second-class humans, that there were some human beings created a little less than other human beings. Now, as Peter was having this vision, God was working out an incredible experience. John Stott says simply, we note how perfectly God dovetailed his working in Cornelius and Peter. The angel appeared to Cornelius, you heard that, and said, hey, Send a Joppa, ask Peter to come here. Cornelius did that. As the party was approaching the city, God gives Peter this vision. And it it happened three times, by the way. You know, it's a complete picture. As Peter kind of woke from that and was pondering what this whole thing meant, that group showed up at his house. 
Then the Holy Spirit said to Peter, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. See, the Spirit said that to Peter because the Spirit knew that Peter would hesitate because of his upbringing, right? This went against everything he'd ever learned about the exclusive differences between Jews and Gentiles, and he would have hesitated. That's why the Spirit saw that coming, and and the Lord said, don't hesitate. Don't hesitate. So here's where it gets interesting for us, right? Do not hesitate to love and engage the human being in front of you. Whoever that person might be, whatever your upbringing might be telling you about them, right? I'm not far off. Isn't this how we apply this text to our lives? Jesus is in the business of making people clean. And best I can understand, Jesus is interested in making everyone clean. And look at this from 1 Timothy. God our Savior who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all people. Now the gospel is a message for all. And by all we mean everybody everywhere. Not most all, right? All. When when Peter arrived in Caesarea, Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. So think about the oikos of the ancient world. Families didn't live in little, you know, nuclear family houses like we do. They lived in compounds with their extended family. What a big group of people, probably maybe 100 people, 150 people when Peter showed up. Uh, and, And in a way, Cornelius and, and all of the relatives gathered there that day, all the friends that, that Cornelius had invited represent a world waiting in silence and despair for some message of hope. For, for some message of good news from beyond ourselves that might actually be able to help us with our brokenness. And by our brokenness, you know what I'm talking about. I mean your brokenness and my brokenness. We're messed up and we need help from beyond ourselves. Hope that a message might come that actually carries the power to heal our brokenness, giving real hope to real people living in this real world. And when Peter went inside and found that large gathering of people all Gentiles, by the way, all second-class citizens according to his upbringing, Peter said this. He said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? Then the story, he shares the gospel and the whole household comes to faith. The phrase translated against our law meant it was against ancient custom for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. It was taboo, social taboo, just no fly zone, right? Don't go there. 
But God had shown Peter that he should not call anyone impure or unclean. Now I wonder, do we think of some people as impure or unclean? Do you think of some people as impure or unclean? You know, are there, are there groups, are there categories of people, fellow humans that you place either knowingly or maybe even unknowingly in some kind of different category that's not where you are? And maybe not spoken out loud in a way kind of somehow beyond God's love and hope to redeem, maybe, that factors in. How about this guy? And what, what triggers in your mind when you just look at that man? How about these three? Or this guy? Or what about her? Follower of Jesus, your primary allegiance is to Jesus. Jesus is in the business of making people clean. You should not consider any other human being impure or unclean. No matter your own assumption grid functioning in there, no matter the upbringing which you received, that means practically that we are not to see other people as the world defines them or as a culture categorizes them or even as they present themselves. We are to see every other human being through what we believe biblically about human beings. And we believe some stuff biblically about human beings. Every person created in the image of God and precious in God's eyes for that reason alone. Each and every one loved by God. Each and every one the target of God's inviting grace. It, it appears as we read scripture that in the end, some might ultimately reject that inviting grace. But that's way above our pay grade and not to impact our posture toward people at all. Our posture toward people is to adopt the Lord's eyes toward everyone, not most, everyone, understanding that the gospel is a message for all and we're called to see people the way the Lord does and simply share what we know of Jesus absent of all of our prejudgments and baggage about other people.
the voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Pray with me, would you? Lord, we really do ask your help with this one. Because we know that we make assumptions about others, that we carry a lot of baggage, and, and we know that we have blind spots, too. So, Lord, would you please open our eyes? Would you please help us see things about ourselves that we might not yet see? Uh, And would you give us the courage to follow you in obedience for the simple reason that you said so? Uh, Give us your eyes to see other people as you see them. Give us your heart to love people as you do. Uh, And help us to share Jesus winsomely. It's in his name we pray. Amen.